this morning, some of you, uh, I anticipate some of you have returned simply because you've heard the news that we have finished the book of Hebrews. Welcome back. Um, I admit the book of Hebrews was a difficult book to journey through, and in response to that, I've decided to go to another difficult book to journey through, um, the book of Esther. The book of Esther. Now, some of you are wondering, you've probably heard the story of Esther. If you haven't, it's a wonderful story of God preserving His people. But there's some peculiar difficulties that come with preaching through this particular book, not to mention the fact that it's a narrative which doesn't lend itself so well to my style of preaching, and so I'm going to have to grow as a preacher, and you're going to have to be patient with me. And uh, among those other things, I'm excited to get to this book. What we find is a young Hebrew woman who becomes queen of the, the king in the Persian Empire somewhere around the 4th century B.C., maybe 5th century B.C. And uh, in all of this, there's a, a bad guy, an antagonist in the book of Esther, whose mission is not just to wipe out his enemy, uh, Mordecai, but to wipe out the entire Jewish race. And so it's an exciting book to see how God's going to respond to those situations and even to be able to acknowledge that God is in control of all things in this world, even though He is not the author of evil. That's a big question to grapple with, to think about how evil exists in the world, how God's in control of all things. And so it makes it very exciting. But there are some difficulties. The book of Esther makes no mention of God. The book of Esther doesn't really reflect particularly godly people in that we see examples of godliness in the way that they live their lives. We don't find examples of praying. We don't find examples of uh, reading the Word of God. We don't find examples of worshiping God. And yet we find this book somewhere in the Bible. Well, how could this be? Isn't the Bible all about God? It is. Where is God in the book of Esther? Well, another question that we might ask is maybe a little bit more relevant to you. Where is God in your life when it feels like He's silent? Well, I say that by way of introduction. Let's jump right into the text this morning and see where it takes us. We'll be looking at the first nine verses in the book of Esther. And so I would ask that you have your Bibles open there as I read out loud, that you would read along with me. But before we do that, we'll pray and ask that God will give us the illumination to be able to understand the questions we have asked. Father in heaven, I ask that you would be with us this morning as we turn to your word, God, that we would be blessed by it as we've already been blessed by the gathering of your saints, as we've been blessed by the singing of your praises, by the encouragement of one another, God, I pray that you would be with us. God, help us to turn to your word and to enjoy it and to recognize that it comes from you, God, that it's applicable to our daily lives. Help us to see that application and know how to live as your people. In the name of our Savior, we ask these things. Amen. Now in the days of Hazarus, 
the Ahasuerus who reigned from India to Ethiopia over 127 provinces. In those days when King Ahasuerus sat on his royal throne in Susa, the citadel, in the third year of his reign, he gave a feast for all his officials and servants. The army of Persia and Media and the nobles and governors of the provinces were before him. While he showed the riches of his royal glory and the splendor and pomp of his greatness for many days, 180 days. And when these days were completed, the king gave for all the people present in Susa, the citadel, both great and small, a feast lasting for seven days in the court of the garden of the king's palace. There were white cotton curtains and violet hangings fastened with cord and fine linen and purple to silver rods and marble pillars and also couches of gold and silver and mosaic pavement and porphyry, marble, mother of pearl, and precious stones. Drinks were served in golden vessels of different kinds, and the royal wine was lavished according to the bounty of the king, and the drinking was according to the edict. There is no compulsion, for the king had given orders to all the staff of his palace to do as each man desired. Queen Vashiti also gave a feast for the women in the palace that belonged to King Ahasuerus. The first thing that we must observe in looking at the book of Esther, and certainly what we find in really the first chapter, maybe even going into the second chapter, is what is the common ground or what is the setting that this story is built upon? And when we're reading a narrative or reading a book that tells us a story, oftentimes it begins by telling us the important details like who are the main characters? Where are we at? And that's an important consideration as we look at the book of Esther. After all, we're somewhere in the New Testament. I've already given you some advanced warning. We're somewhere in the 5th century. And I'll tell you how I know that. The book begins by mentioning King Ahasuerus. And there are artifacts that verify the reign of King Ahasuerus in the Persian Empire during this time. And so, with confidence, I can tell you this is near the end of the Old Testament. At least in timeline or chronology. Remember... Between the book of Malachi and the book of Matthew, there's a 400-year period where there is no word from God. So at the end of the Old Testament to the New Testament, we have that 400-year window. If we're in the 5th century, that's about where we're at. Why does that matter? Well, it tells us where the Hebrew people are. It tells us where they are in their history. What makes the book of Esther so difficult is, of course, this no mention of God, this not necessarily biblical people. In fact, I would even uh, be critical of some of the characters in Esther for living like worldlians. And so one of the questions that I would even consider that I, I believe is important, especially coming off of the book of Hebrews, is how do we live in a godless world? Now, the book of Hebrews, I, I mentioned several times, is the most Old Testament of the New Testament books. It encourages Christians, you and I, to live in a peculiar way that reflects that we are the chosen people of God. I am one of the chosen ones. Isn't that a great thing to say? You are one of the chosen ones. This morning, if you've accepted Christ as your Savior, you've been chosen by God, and you're one of the chosen ones. 
Harry Potter's got nothing on you. Frodo, Lord of the Rings, has nothing on you. You've been chosen by a power greater than, than Dumbledore and a power greater than Saruman. Um, so that's something exciting. But if we're supposed to live as a particular people, if we're supposed to live as a peculiar people, does that mean we're supposed to run off and, and simply live in a Christian commune of sorts where the only people we interact with are Christians? The only people that we conduct business with are Christians? The only people that we spend our free time with are believers? The answer is no. And this isn't a new phenomenon. As Christians called by God... We are also called to be content in the world that we are in. In fact, we're even to have a place in the world that we are in. Certainly, our place in the world is a blessing to all people created in the image of God because we bring holiness into the world through following and pursuing Christ. Does that make it all that easy? It doesn't. Guys, look up here for a second and just, just get real. Is it easy to live in a world that is corrupted by the condition of sin? You can shake your head and respond to me. Is it easy to live in a world that is corrupted by sin? It gets harder. It gets harder. The closer we draw towards God, the closer we pursue Him, the, the more that we attempt to walk with Him and live out holiness in our day-to-day -day lives, the world becomes a greater agitator to our rightful indignation. Even a righteous indignation. Living in a world that mocks Christian values. Now, in the days of Ahasuerus, this 5th century scene where we find our main characters, what kind of a world did they live in? The 5th century comes at a time when the Persian Empire had conquered the Babylonian Empire. Why does that matter? Because a few years before that, the Babylonian Empire had sent conquest on Jerusalem, God's chosen city for His people, where He built His temple, where He established them, where He fulfilled promises that were established in the Old Testament. During the Babylonian captivity, the method in the ancient world, whenever you took over people... Now think about this. If you went on a conquest and you conquered, you know, say, Boonville, that God-forsaken... No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> if you conquered Boonville, do you think everyone in Boonville would automatically be uh, loyal to the new regime that took them over? No, they're free, independent people thinking. They weren't really all that loyal to the people that stood above them before that. They're just living their lives. Right? Well, this was a problem in the ancient world where you had conquest of this nature. How do you make these people that you've just conquered loyal to you? Well, very simple. Make them prisoners. You'd take about half of the people in the place that you had conquered and you'd move them back to your home territory. You'd make them some sort of you would make them exiles, separate them from their own kindred, make them dependent on you. In the same sense, with the other half that remained, you would take your own people and you would have a great immigration and you move them there so that your people could rule over them in Jerusalem. And so you had this exile period. 
an exile period. The Babylonian Empire didn't last. The Persians conquered the Babylonians. And, of course, great blessing came with the Persians cap, um, conquering the Babylonians. We know that because of the Persian kings, uh, we were at, we've been through Nehemiah, but during the days of Ezra and Nehemiah, the Persian king would give license and permission for the Jews to return to Jerusalem where they would rebuild the temple and later they would rebuild the city and God's blessing would be restored to them as they repented of their sinfulness. Now I've walked off very far from my notes this morning. Perhaps I've lost some of you, but stick with me. There's a reason to the things that I'm mentioning. There, there's a method to my madness, as some would say. And here it is. The exile is a difficult problem. God promised to be faithful to His people, to His children. Why are they going through this? Well, we know part of the reason that the Jews suffered the ex exile was because they could not keep the laws that He had given them. They rebelled against Him. In fact, the days of Judges, the people did as they thought was right in their own eyes. In the days of the kings following Solomon, you had wicked kings and division among the kingdom and the separation of Israel and Judea and all of these other very important issues. And God judged His people. He judged them like a father that disciplines his children. He caused them to be separated from this land that was a symbol and re representation of His promises to them. This forced the Hebrew people to live not just in a godless world that was corrupted by sin, but to live amongst a godless people, the Persians. This is the question, same position that we find ourselves in today. Called by God, redeemed by His Son's blood, justified, made holy before Him, being sanctified in holiness. We live in a world that is godless. We can't mince words here. We live in a world that is godless. A world that rebels against God. A world that does not want to hear from God. A world that is not interested in doing things in His righteous ways, but is interested in doing things in their own ways. A world that cannot see past their own lives. A world that is only interested in the moment that they live in and that they might do well. We finished the book of Hebrews and the major themes that we left on. We're looking at God giving us something greater to look forward to. Even being able to suffer in the face of persecution for the sake of looking forward to what God had before us in heaven. The teachings of Jesus came to life as we considered what it means to lay up our treasures in heaven rather than on earth. Well then, what does it mean to live under a Persian king? And in the midst of all of this, where is God? This is the big question to ask. While there's no mention of God in the book of Esther... If you spend time looking at commentaries on this book or trying to prepare for this, one of the things that you'll find is there's a great deal of discussion on whether or not Esther should even be included in the, New Test or the Old Testament. 
Jewish scholars and even uh, contemporary scholars look at it and they, I, I read, I, I can't remember who to attribute it to, but I, I believe it was John Calvin said that he would be okay if the book of Esther was simply removed or lost. I disagree vehemently with such statements. Why? Because I have some presuppositions that I bring in to reading the book of Esther. First of all, it's one of the 66 books that I consider the canon, that is the Bible. It's one of the 66 books that make up the Bible. How'd that get determined? God decided what would be written, what would be preserved, and what would be contained for us today. With that said, I know what the Bible says about itself. It's testimony that the Word is not simply the Word written by man, but it has what we would call a dual authorship, that even though a human man wrote these words at some point in time in history, according to God's sovereignty, that he did not write it on his own, but that he was carried along by the Holy Spirit as he wrote these words. That the Holy Spirit carried him along, and so this book also has a divine author. What does the Bible tell me about itself? It says that every word is profitable for teaching, for training in righteousness, for reproof, for rebuke. That tells me that everyone who would rather spend time criticizing how a book that doesn't mention God can be contained herein is a waste of my time because I simply need the common man's and the common sense perspective to say that this book's in the Bible, it's been here for a while, and that's by God's decree. I tell you, this book has no mention of God, but God is everywhere to be found in this book. How can I say that? Because I've spent time trying to understand how it is that God works. And that means that even in these circumstances, that this state that the people find themselves in under Persian rule, exiled from Jerusalem, not even their own people, happened according to God's will. It happened according to God allowing it. Something that we would even call predestination. Now hold on to your seats for a second. I mentioned predestination, and there's some people that would get very upset or turned around on such a statement. In fact, it's um, <clears throat> unfortunately one of the most beautiful doctrines in the whole Bible has become something that causes us to recoil. What does it mean to say that God predestines things? Well, it's very simple. It's found in the Bible. Romans 8, 29 through 30. It means that for those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the likeness of His Son. It means that God foreknew people and chose them to be conformed to the image of His Son. Ephesians 1.5, that He predestined some or predestined us to be adopted as His sons through Jesus Christ in accordance with His pleasure and will. God holds everything in control and is able to predestine and foreknow circumstances before we see them. Now, I'm not ignorant. I know why people recoil when they hear this word. It's because they're concerned that somebody that talks about predestination is also saying that humans, you and I, don't have free will or free choice of our own. They're saying that 
King Ahasuerus didn't have his own will to make decisions. It means that Mordecai didn't have free will to make his decisions, or Esther didn't, or Haman even, didn't have free will to make his decisions. Guys, I want to just say really fast, recoiling against predestination is just as bad, just as unbiblical as saying that free will does not exist. Our church's doctrinal statement in Article 7, Divine Sovereignty and Human Freedom, is probably the best statement I have ever found on what the Bible teaches concerning this. God's sovereignty and man's freedom are two inseparable factors in the salvation experience. Two inseparable factors in the salvation experience. The two Bible truths are in no way contradictory, but they are amazingly complementary in the great salvation so freely provided. God and His sovereignty purposed, planned, and executed salvation in eternity, while man's freedom enables him to make a personal choice in time either to receive the salvation and be saved or reject it and be damned. God's sovereignty and man's free will are not contradictory constructs. The only reason people make them contradictory or the only reason people make them stand against each other is because that's the only way it works out in their own mind. They put their own logic and reasoning above the Word of God. Some of you might try to write your own systematic theology where you can put these things in perspective and ultimately you will have to come to a point where you make a decision whether or not you will say that God is sovereign or whether man has free will. Because if God's sovereign, how can man have free will? And if man has free will, how could God be in complete control of everything? If you put your logic above what the Bible says, you're making yourself the God that you're writing about. The Bible mentions both, and there's no contradiction between the two of them. So how can I say that God is present in every single circumstance here? Even as we get to our villain, Haman, who would want to kill and ruin all of the Jews. He would want to lay them in mass genocide. How can I say that God is in control of this? Could I contend for a second that perhaps the way that you think about God isn't nearly big enough? Could I contend for a moment that if you're struggling with these concepts, you are making God out to be smaller than He actually is? God is all-knowing, all-places, and all-powerful. I make decisions, some of them I'm not even aware that I make them. As I live my life, I'm influenced by my past. I'm influenced by past traumas, by past successes, by all of these different experiences. Spend time raising kids and think about just how important the small moments are, just for a second. As you watch your children, do you, do you coddle them? Do you make sure that they don't take any risks? Do you, make sure, do you not let them climb on the monkey bars because you're afraid they could fall and they could bash their head open? 
That's one reproach that we could take. The jury's out. Do you know what happens when you coddle children? They grow up with absolutely no risk tolerance, and they're not able to negotiate a world that requires taking risk. What's that mean? It means when they go to work, they don't try to do their best because they'd rather play it safe. It means when they go to school, they don't pursue new ideas or concepts because they don't understand it and they would rather play it safe in the areas that they're naturally successful in. Do you know why we let children play on monkey bars? Because it teaches them, one, their limits. When they fall and they bash their head in and they fall on, you know, the soft, pillowy um, sod or sod's not pillowy, um, whatever it is that they fall on, it hurts, but it doesn't hurt so much that it seriously maims them. It teaches them their limits. It teaches them how much risk tolerance they can actually take on. Second, when they succeed, it teaches them that risk also comes with reward. That's just talking about parents, but why do I mention all of this? Have I rabbit holed far away from talking about Esther to talking about how I'm raising my children? There's a connection. I'm not able to observe all of the connections that we make in our past that influence the decisions that we make today. But God, who knows everything, who is everywhere, knows every situation that you've ever been in, and He knows how it's going to influence you. He knows the decisions that you're going to make according to your own will. God is incredibly sovereign. As we read the book of Esther, what we find is, even though he's not mentioned, he's in control of everything. He's in control of everything. But why? Why read this book? Why spend time looking at this book where we find God's people living in a godless world? There's a struggle that we have when we read the Bible, and that is sometimes we read things that simply confuse us. That simply confuse us. I don't know if you've spent time reading the book of Leviticus lately. Maybe you can recall back to the beginning of the year as we're going through our Bible reading plan, we went through the book of Leviticus. There were some things there that I read and I just went, wow, that's a whole lot of detail about a whole lot of stuff that's not relevant today. Well, that's not true, is it? Sometimes when we read the Bible, we get too close to the trees. Sometimes we get so close to things that we're not able to actually see the forest that surrounds us. The book of Esther is definitely a book where that is a risk for us. Take for a moment, in my Bible, if I take the beginning of the book of Esther and I flip all the way to the end, it's only three pages in my Bible. I'm holding in my hand the book of Esther, and this is what we're going to look at. On this side of the book of Esther is a whole lot of Bible. On the other side of Esther is a whole lot of Bible. 
to really read and understand what's happening in the book of Esther, what I need to do is I need to see the bigger picture. What is this book about? I've chased a lot of rabbits already this morning. I'm going to avoid them at all costs moving forward. So pay attention to this point because it is important. When we read the book of Esther, what we are finding is we are finding God preserving His people so that He can bring in the Messiah, so that Jesus Christ can come into this world. The bigger picture, the bigger perspective that we see looking before the book of Esther is the promises that God has established for His chosen people, going all the way back to Genesis chapter 3, Verse 15. And hear me, if you don't understand the promise in Genesis 3.15, there's absolutely no way that you will be able to understand the book of Esther. There's no way you'll have any application from it. What is Genesis 3.15? After the fall of man in the garden, God speaking to the serpent says that there will come a day when the descendant of Eve will crush the head of the serpent, even though the serpent will bite his heel. This is what we would call, or theologians would call, or really, really nerdy people would call the proto-euangelion, or the proto-evangelism, or the first gospel. That even though sin has entered the world, there is coming a time when even though Satan will bite the heel of Eve's descendant, even though sin will leave a mark, even though it will leave a stain, even though it will come with suffering, even though it will come with a price, there will come a day when the descendant of Eve, Jesus Christ, will crush the head of Satan, when there will be ultimate victory in the battle between sin and righteousness. This is the promise that God has established. And as we move through the Bible, what we find is that God is working all things out to bring this plan into fruition. This promise, as in Genesis 3.15, is carried onward as God makes promises to Abraham to make him a nation great before all people. As He establishes Abraham as a man that will build a family that will become the Israelites. As they go into Egypt and into captivity and God calls them out and into the promised land so that they might be a peculiar people. Sometimes we get so close to the Bible that we can't see the forest that we're in. If you're reading Leviticus and you're wondering what is all this with the golden lampstands and the gold and the violet and the scarlet and the, all these colors and why are they all mentioned and why is there a, a frog here and all these strange different things. Here's the answer. God's creating a peculiar people. A peculiar people that will carry His promises into the next generation so that He can bring the Messiah into the world, that the blessings of the Israelites would be extended not just to the Hebrews, but that it would be given to the Gentile nations, that they would accept Him, that those that God foreknew would be called according to His plan, and that they would know Him, and that they would choose to repent from their sinfulness, and that they would follow Him. If you understand Genesis 3.15, Esther begins to make a whole lot of sense, because what's happening in Esther... Genocide is on the brink. What would happen if in the 5th century B.C. the Jewish people were removed from the face of the earth? 
Jesus was a Jew. His mother Mary was a Hebrew woman. His earthly father, the one who took the place of a father on earth, Joseph was a Hebrew man. What would happen if genocide removed the Jews from the face of the earth in the 5th century? Here's the fun part. That what if doesn't matter because God is sovereign. It never could have happened because he holds all things in control. In the days of King Ahasuerus, the king of Ahasuerus who reigned from India to Ethiopia, there came a man named Haman who wanted to kill all of the Jews, and he was unsuccessful because God placed a woman, Esther, in a place where she could have influence. Through God's sovereignty and provision, the Hebrew people lived on. The promises of God as we hold on to them today give us the same confidence. One thing that strikes me as I read through the book of Esther is the familiar phrase that Mordecai says to Esther when, when he is instructing her to risk her position and risk her life by going to the king and asking him for some special provisions that would protect him. And Esther, or Mordecai says to Esther, who knows, perhaps you were called for such a time as this. And, and of course we all know that. And this is Really, the difficulty with preaching through the book of Esther is our entire energy, I think, is put forward in getting to that, that passage. But Mordecai goes on. He doesn't stop in just saying that you've been brought here for such a time as this. But he says, but even if you don't, even if you don't step up to this occasion, what does he say would happen? God will save us through another means. Here's why the book of Esther matters, because it shows us how we can cling to the promises that God has given us. He's a powerful God. If we've not made the error of making him smaller than he actually is, then the promises that he has given to his people will last forever and he will carry them out. The book of Esther teaches us how to live in a godless world. Well, let's take a moment. A lot of that was introduction. A lot of that was away from the text this morning, giving us some background. Let's get into the text. Let's look at this king, this King Ahasuerus, this setting that's kind of being established. First of all, this king was a big deal. He reigned over 127 provinces. 127 provinces. If you look in verse 1, it says that he reigned from India to Ethiopia. That's another way of saying he reigned over the entire known world. In the 5th century, he was the world conqueror or the equivalent. He reigned over the entire known world from India to Ethiopia, over 127 provinces. In those days, he sat on a royal throne in Susa, the citadel. And in the third year of his reign, he gave a feast for all his officials. King Hazarus, also known as King Xerxes, gave two feasts in the nine passages that we looked at this morning. The first one lasted a 180 days. Can you imagine hosting a party for 180 days? I can hardly imagine, and I enjoy hosting people. I enjoy um, having guests. I enjoy entertaining. Can you imagine hosting 180 days? I think four hours is my max. 
Because while I do enjoy hosting people, I'm an introvert, which means at the end of those four hours, I go crawl into a hole, cry myself to sleep, and I wake up three days later and I'm rejuvenated again. And some of you are crazy and actually get worked up by spending time around people and get, that's nuts. You should pray and seek God. Learn what it means to be content by yourself. That's crazy. King Hazarus was probably like you, though. 180 days he entertained the army of Persia and Media, all of his officials and servants. He had a big party. Big party. Why did he have this big party? He was showing everyone how big of a deal he was. Hosting people comes with a cost. It's, he had to provide food for all of these people that he was entertaining. He had to give them something to do. His water bill was probably higher. I mean, can you imagine all these people had to bathe? 180 days, this isn't go home, take care of yourself, come back. He's really putting them up. When these days were completed, he gave another feast. He gave another feast, a great for the great and small, for all of the people that were in the citadel, a feast lasting seven days. I'm in verse 5. A feast lasting for seven days in the court of the garden of the king's palace. There were white cotton curtains and violet hangings fastened with cords of fine linen and purple to silver rods and marble pillars, and couches of gold and silver and mosaic pavement and porphyry. Am I saying that word right? Marble, mother of pearl, precious stones. Look at all of the stuff that's being described here. Why? Because the Bible's telling us just how big of a deal this king of Hazarus was. He gave a feast for 180 days for his servants, for his uh, magistrates, for the armies of Persia and of Media. And now he's going to give another feast lasting seven days for all of the people that were in the citadel. Whether they were great, whether they were small, they were all going to be entertained with all of this lavishness, all of this opulence, all of this greatness that is around him. He's going to serve drinks to them, and we see that it comes with a price. Obviously, he serves drinks to the people, but not just is he going to give them drinks in red solo cups. Mm -mm. Golden vessels! He's not bringing out the fine china. He brought out golden vessels made for each one of his guests. Try just for a second to wrap your head around what it means to take all of the people in the citadel and to entertain them. How many red solo cups are you going to buy? A whole lot. Can you imagine buying a china set large enough for all of these people? I can't. There's no way. Golden vessels. Not just cast golden vessels. Check this out. A little small detail. Drinks were served, verse 7, in golden vessels of different kinds. These aren't mass-produced golden vessels, but they're all unique. King Ahasuerus was such a big deal that he had enough provision in his own um, possessions to give golden vessels to every person that was in the citadel, both great and small, and to let them drink however much they would with no compulsion, for the king had given orders that each man would do as he desired. This King Hazarus seems like a pretty big deal. 127 provinces, a lavish feast, a second feast, extravagant decorations, a golden cup for everyone. 
I'd like to know how this King Ahasuerus came to be such a mighty and powerful king. We might even read this passage and we might ask, I'd like to know how to have such possessions as King Ahasuerus. Right? Is there not an earthly pool inside of you that says, man, I would like to be able to give golden vessels to all of my guests every time that they come over. As a matter of fact, the only thing that makes me buy red Solo cups is because I don't want to wash out dishes whenever they all leave because cleaning up's just a pain. I'd rather throw it in the trash. If I had as much possession as King Hazarus, I would just hire somebody to clean those dishes for me and I wouldn't have to worry about it. Can you not daydream in this way? It's very easy to daydream. Oh, we look at King Ahasuerus and we ask, well, how could this king have acquired so much stuff? How could he have acquired so much influence that he reigned over 127 provinces? I've got an answer for you. Remember, we talked about it a little bit ago. God's sovereign and God decided that Ahasuerus was going to have all this stuff and he was going to have all this influence. He was king by God's decree. How are Christians supposed to live in a godless world? Part of what makes it godless is that we have godless leaders. Part of what makes this world as corrupt as it is is that the people who are in power do not seek God, but rather they seek their own glory and position. There's issues of corruption coming out every day in the news where we read about people that we've trusted or put our trust in who have used their power and influence to acquire more possession for themselves and to stand themselves up. That's a real sad story, isn't it? From a Christian perspective, I must say, first, they acquired their position because God allowed them to. Hey, we get finished preaching the book of Hebrews, and one of the things that we look at is, man, wouldn't it be great if we could just live as God's people, separated from the world, so separated that we only look forward to heaven. And the only thing between us and that was simply living a godly life with all the godly people that we surround ourselves from. But friends, listen to me. The message that we receive from the Bible in the broader strokes is not that we are to be so radical that we separate ourselves in this way, but rather we're supposed to live in a world. Because Christians acknowledge that all authority comes from God. This brings me to my final point. Some of you are excited to hear those words. Final point. Buckle in. It's a long one. No, I'm just kidding. We'll get through it pretty quick. Here's my final point. Even though King Ahasuerus was a really, really big deal, there was a big king over him. God, who is sovereign over all things, is the king that holds all things in control. And so here's what we find. Even though King Hazarus was king over 127 provinces, over the entire known world, God was God over all of the world, even the unknown bits. He may have been king by God's decree. He may have had earthly and human authority because God established him. This is a well-established point in the Bible. Romans 13 verse 1 tells us that the authorities that exist have been established by God. Consequently, he who rebels against the authority is rebelling against what God has instituted. And those who do so will bring judgment on themselves. How are Christians supposed to live in a godless world? Well, our political leaders today find it um, 
in their, their own best interest to debate whether or not it is safe to subject children, minors, who we have also deemed incapable of making adult decisions on themselves because of their lack of maturity, to make life-altering decisions that would mutilate or harm their bodies. How are Christians supposed to live in a godless world where it's actually a debate, in fact, whether we should have drag show races in libraries for children? That's real life. That's something that the world is considering today. How are Christians supposed to live in a godless world where the people that have been given authority are talking about things as if they're actual cogent conversations that make any, any minuscule amount of sense in intellectual ways? First, we acknowledge that God is the one that established all of these authorities and he's put them in these positions. We subject ourselves to authorities because we are godly people living as God says. But we recognize that above even those authorities is a God who is greater than them. And we must say, like the apostles, that we must judge whether it is better for us to obey God or whether it is better to obey them. And I say this. Anyone given such blessing by God to be established as an authority? Anyone given provision like King Ahasuerus? Will still be held accountable to a God who is clear in his word. By a God that has hold, held all things together since Genesis 3.15 all the way to the present day, holding on to his promises and fulfilling them amongst his people. How are Christians supposed to live in a godless world where the world around us tells us that they are tired of hearing us talk about the Bible and, well, even some Christians or so-called Christians would tell us, if all you do is preach the Bible, you're never going to uh, draw the world into you so that they can hear the gospel presented. Very simple. Are we going to bow down to the authorities by the, those who have been given positions of prominence for the sake of obeying them? Or are we going to recognize that there is a God that stands above them? Are we going to recognize that there is a God that stands above them that says that His word is sufficient? Indeed, by no other means is anyone saved but by hearing the word of God proclaimed. It may look like nonsense to some, but... I genuinely believe that the Word of God is so powerful that if we would only be faithful to it, that the world would become saved. I believe that Christians should use their influence in their world. And in our context, you should use your right to vote, that you should use what God has given you as an, a, an American citizen to use your ability to have influence on the world that we live in, that we might get godly leaders that might be able to turn our country towards God, that we might see revival in our country. But my hope is not in my ability to do this. My hope is not in any of these things. My hope is in a God who orchestrates this. And so my greatest ability is as I pray to God. 
My greatest ability is that as I turn to his word and I proclaim it. What are we to do with the issue of authority in this world? How are Christians to live in a godless world? Very simply, recognize that this world may be godless in its actions, but God is not out of it. He's holding all things in control, and he's using you, perhaps in some situation, to bring about his glory. You've been given an edict by God to go. And this is my final, final word. When the world tells you that they're tired of hearing you proclaim the gospel, G-O-S-P-E-L, God in the beginning of everything, declared, created everything, and he created you because he loved you. Our sin separated us from God. Ever since sin entered the world, it has separated us from God. It's created alienation from God. And the greatest problem with sin is that it deserves judgment. It deserves damnation. And there's nothing that you can do to get rid of the sin that you have inherited from your fathers. You inherited it when you were born. The moment you were born, you inherited sinfulness. There's nothing that removes that mark. Because that mark exists, you deserve hell. And hell's worse than anything you can possibly imagine. It's worse than any picture I could paint with my words. Because sin ultimately means separation from God. Hell means absolute alienation from God, who even in a godless world is present in his blessings. You might say... I'm a good person. Hey, even though I live in the world a little bit, I live for Christ Jesus, my King. I'm a decent and good person. I've been to church my whole life. I know all the Bible stories. Let us remember that Satan is perhaps the greatest theologian that roams. He knows the Bible frontwards and backwards. He knows what it says. He knows God. He's spoken to God directly. Think about that. Have you done that? He's damned. And so are you if you don't know the rest of the gospel because it goes on, G-O-S-P. Jesus Christ paid. He paid the debt that sin owes. He paid it fully and completely that anyone that would put their faith in Him would have everlasting life. He died because that is the wage that sin owes. E, for everyone. He died for everyone so that everyone who puts their faith in him would be able to experience the gospel, which ends in L, that they would have everlasting life. When the world tells you they're tired of hearing that message, do you know what you do? You keep proclaiming the gospel. The only way we will ever see real turnaround is if the church experiences real revival. Not just in the hearts of the unregenerate. I'm not just talking about unsaved people coming and getting saved so that they can come sit in the pew and they can fall asleep during a boring sermon on the book of Esther that doesn't even mention God and a preacher that's far too nerdy that wants to talk about the 5th century and the history that goes into this and who King Ahasuerus was. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about the people who are already in the church believing in the promises of God to such an extent that they wake up every morning and they, their first thought is, what do you have for me today, God? 
Their first prayer is, God, who have you appointed for me to speak to? Christians who believe in the Word of God with such conviction, with such compelling nature, that whenever they are afraid to share the gospel with their friends, they put their trust in God that will give them the words to proclaim such truth, and they do it anyway, and they stand back amazed at what God can do because they simply believed in Him. You know what happens when the church is filled with those kinds of Christians? We might even call them fanatics. You know what happens when the church is filled with those kinds of Christians? The unsaved people actually get saved. And then, rather than worrying about legislating morality, do you know what happens? People begin living moral lives, not because they have to, because they're compelled by a law that stands over them as an authority, but because they recognize that there is a king that stands over even those laws. And in recognizing this great king, they also are experiencing transformation in their own hearts, that their lives are being changed. You know what I don't like about my gospel acronym? I left out perhaps the greatest part. Sometimes we explain away sin by, you know, trying to address the fact that people, people think they can do good and they can cover up their wrongdoings or that there can be a greater good to cover up the evil that they've conducted in their lives. You know what the best part of the gospel is? I don't think anyone in this room has to think for a moment, oh, I'm basically a good person. I think we're all okay with saying I'm a sinner, with saying that I've done wrong, saying that I've hurt my parents, saying that I've hurt my friends, I've betrayed people, I've not kept my obligations. I've not let my word mean what it says all the time. Sometimes I've lied. I've looked with lust. I think all of us have no problem admitting that. Here's the greatest part of the gospel. Not only did Jesus pay the consequences or the wages that those sins brought, but he also offers for anyone that would put their faith in him to cleanse their conscience of the guilt that they feel because of those things. He also promises to put at peace within our heart all of the turmoil that we experience and the confidence that not only have the wages of these wrongdoings been set aside, but that he has created inside of our heart a new person that he's created within us a regenerate person. A person who's able to know God, not just in the sense of, I want to obey you, Lord, but in the sense of, thank you for loving me, Lord. Being able to say the song that we sang a moment ago, he loved me first. And in giving his life for me first, he's made me new. Let's pray. Father in heaven, this morning I thank you so much for... I thank you for your word, Lord. I pray that we had been faithful to it, and even if we haven't in our walking through the text, Lord, I pray that you are faithful to us in understanding the prayer that we asked before we opened up to your word. 
that we would know how to apply these truths to our life. To be able to walk with you with confidence in knowing that you are sovereign over all things. But now, Lord, that we must respond with our own will. And so we ask, God, that you would give us, first of all, the wisdom to know how to apply your word to our life. That you'd help us to know what we're to do in response to this. And then, Lord, that we would have the confidence to know how to follow in obedience. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand with us as we prepare to sing this song? And I would ask that as we're singing, that you would consider how you need to respond. That you would respond to God in an act of obedience, whether that means praying, calling out to Him, repenting, coming forward, asking for the church to pray for you, that you would recognize His sovereignty and that you would be prepared to go. Number 327.